Thank you. Not at all. Um, well, welcome to BAFTA Scotland, Stephen. It's thrilling to be here. It really is, honestly, to be here is amazing. And much to discuss. I wonder if we can start with, with your eminent monster, uh, Ewan Cameron, who seems to be at the root of modern torture. How did you first come across him? So I've long given up reading books on hardback copies. I've you know, adopted the, the digital thing. But in 2007, I, Naomi Klein had a book called The Shock Doctrine, which landed in my doorstep. It just came out. And I was reading the book, and it must have been about 10 o'clock at night, and I remember having a very visceral reaction. Round about chapter two, she talks about Ewan Cameron. And as a Glasgow boy, thinking that that's 25 minutes, 40 minutes away, to think that he was a seed of this just became, well, I had a, a, a very visceral reaction that night. I ended up spending the rest of the night squirreled away looking at Google, trying to find a way. And my wife, I think she got up the next morning at 6 or 6.30, and she found me still in all the sort of the hell holes that is Google trying to work out exactly what had been going on. Because there's a lot of rumour, counter-rumour, allegations, falsehoods within the internet about what really happened. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's how it all started, 2007. So I've been doing my job for 24 years this year. And so I tried to get a film commission at that point. It didn't happen. In 2012, I tried to get a film commission again. That was when the Senate torture report came out. Mm -hmm. And again, that didn't happen. And then 2017, and my producer, John, who's not here just now, but I did a, another film about Dunblane, and the commissioner down on BBC Two really liked that, so he spoke to her. In the end, BBC Two network hasn't come on board, but uh, Ewan Angus, who was part of BBC Scotland at that point, came on, and then Creative Scotland came on as well. So we, so we got a commission in 2017. So a long journey, 10 yes. years. Well, I was going to say 10 years. Why do you think... It's only now that this particular documentary has landed. It's a, it's a good question. Maybe perseverance. Also in 2017, that's when the two architects within the, the Guantanamo and the Black Sites, Jim Mitchell and Bruce Jessen, were finally put in trial. So there was a wee bit of news around. Uh, so I, I think in 2007, probably we weren't right, ready there. I was certainly ready, but I don't think the commissioners were quite ready yet to think about... It's quite a big thought to think about psychiatrists psychologists and medical professionals are behind this. So what many people think is Guantanamo is a dark site for the baddies, the bad of the bad. Actually, internally, General Dunlady, Gen General Miller, Don Rumsfeld, they all called Guantanamo Battle Laboratory. Now, when you call an institution like Guantanamo the Battle Lab, you realise it's about science. It's not about holding the, bad, the worst of the worst. Mm. So in 2017, I think our, our, our commissioners may be ready for a conversation. I was a bit more further down my career. I had made a few projects that had landed well. And so I think that it just seemed to land well. And plus I was 45. So it, they took pity <laughs> me. They commissioned to me on my birthday. So maybe that's what it was. I mean, there's a strong sense that there's a, there's a movie about Ewan Cameron in himself yeah. uh, from watching this. But I understand that it's difficult to steer a path through what, what he did and didn't do, partly because all the, the documents that you'd like to be able to read are no longer available. His son burned a lot of them. Yeah, so the CIA is really good at house cleaning, and I think we all know that from all the Jason Bourne films and all that kind of films we've seen. But in reality, they're very good at burning things. 
And so they burn a lot of stuff. Now, Ewan Cameron's left in disgrace of the Al Memorial Hospital in 64, I think. His son, who was quite an eminent lawyer by that time, he came back with all the documents. He was allowed to bring back all the documents, even though he was in disgrace. And then the son later burned them all when, he was still, when his dad was still alive. Now, you have to wonder if a lawyer is burning evidence. Now, at this point, there was calls for those documents to be returned. So there was a lot of people beginning to come up through the woodwork trying to ask for the documents. So his son knowingly burnt them. I actually spoke to his son. We tried to get the son involved in the film. We tried to get the daughter involved in the film. And, and, and I would say that's one of the biggest shames I have, and I think that's one thing. It, because I would say Ewan Cameron is heinous, is mercurial, is a bastard, all those type of things. But also he was someone's dad, and I always wanted to get that side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but his son just wouldn't, wouldn't... His son and daughter... Sorry, Ewan Cameron's son and daughter just wouldn't take part. And this brings us to an interesting point about... Ewan Cameron's motivation, how much he knew himself. I mean, when he was doing these experiments between 1957 and 64, yeah. um, do you think that there was something underpinning it that, that allowed him to justify it? So this was, after all, the Cold War period. There was a lot of paranoia around. Maybe that fed into it. Holy Sue, so I think you've got two questions. Mm -hmm. Did he know the CIA funded him? That's one question. And what was driving him? And I think they're really interesting questions. The first one I would say about what was driving him, I think he drank, you call it the Kool-Aid maybe in America, I think he drank the, the thing about the fear of, of the Soviets, the fear of communism. But deep down, you see in his, so in Nuremberg trials, so the head of the OSS, which became the CIA, Alan Dulles, he sent Ewan Cameron to go to the Nuremberg trials to try to see whether Rudolf Hess was sane or not sane, and then he was proved to be sane so he could stand trial. Now, there was a big thing at that point, a big connection bef between CIA or the OSS at that point mm -hmm. and Ewan Cameron. Come when, when he was expounding all these ideas that he could wipe your brain and he could actually create this sort of Manchurian candidate. The funding actually comes from a CIA cutout, which is effectively is a, an organisation that has CIA funded, but nobody seems to know it's CIA funded. Personally, I believe Cameron knew it was CIA-funded, and he had a good connection with the CIA at that point. Right, because that's interesting. I, 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 had to, I was so intrigued, I had a little look around uh, what the Allen Institute uh, have been saying about this. I, I, I see that they are saying, we've not been able to uncover a single shred of evidence that Dr Cameron knew of the CIA connection with his research funding. What do you make of that? As denials go, it's a very good denial. I mean, you know what I mean? It's, it, it, it's completely preposterous. So you have Ewan Cameron who leaves in disgrace. Now, what I'd probably say about all this stuff, is it's an easy to deny because of the burning and the CIA admitted in the Senate, uh, um, there was a um, Senate hearing around about 77, and they admitted openly to be burning material. Um, no one's standing in trial at this point. Uh, no one has stand trial, so it's very easy to deny all these things. But Allen Memorial Hospital knew what they were doing, my belief is, and I have to be aware because some some quite litigious people still. The reason I believe this is because the day after the Allen Memorial, the day after Ewan Cameron left in disgrace, the new head of the Allen Memorial, which I forget his name, he switched off all the sleep room, all the experiments. Okay, so Ewan Cameron published his his articles, which are all peer-reviewed and accepted by the medical community of what he was doing. He was doing this in plain sight. 
The organisations knew what he was doing. Now, we fought really hard, incredibly hard, to get access to the Allen Memorial Hospital. We didn't want us for love or money. money. Um, and, 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 and I can understand that, um, why we wouldn't want it. But I, I, I think it's undeniable that Alan, I, I'm saying this is my belief, I think it's undeniable that Alan Memorial knew what they were taking part in. If not, if you even look at a very small detail, the removal of Ewan Cameron's name in the, in the big uh, library, this is their master library, this is still like, kept very well, every other person who heads up that institution is still named. So if you don't know, I think what they're better to do personally is accept that something went wrong and be more open it. They actually, if I can be very frank, they charge us a location fee to film in there. Now, me and Andy, the DOP, we had the same reaction. I, I hope anyway, Andy. My reaction was we paid for a security guard to, to follow us around when we were doing filming. I have no problem with that at all. That's completely fine. And, and you would pay because we had to, pay, we had to go on a Saturday. But they also wanted a location fee for the institution. Now, you have to wonder, if you're saying as an institution that you are you're trying to absolve yourself from guilt, why do you want then a fee for us to do filming about something that's very heinous in your history? I think it's completely utter bollocks. It really is. It, it's, 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 it's ugly. If the Al Memorial Hospital had said to me, here, can you pay for the security guard? No problem at all, of course. If they said to me afterwards, could you make special mention that immediately after you and Cameron left, we stopped all these, these uh, you know, experiments, I'd have said no problem at all. They were, not in, they were not interested at all having any conversation about trying to put that in. It's, it's, it's weird, isn't it? And you guys have been around TV to know and documentaries to know that this is slightly a strange environment, isn't it, to be in? And we're going to open this out to the audience yeah. in, in just a minute. But I just want to ask... You know, one, one very striking question, which is, how on earth did you get some of the people that appear to speak to you on camera? You already said that it was difficult, yeah. to, impossible to get you and Cameron's offspring to yeah. talk to you. But, but the, the hooded men, the people who had been tortured at Guantanamo, but they must be very suspicious. How did you win them over? Um, well, so the glib answer is, I quite often leave my email to have hello from Glasgow. Actually, I found it, it breaks a lot of water. It really is incredible. If you speak to someone in the Middle East or you speak to someone in America and you say, greetings from Glasgow, it's done me enormously good. And being a Scot, and being proud. With the hooded men I came over with, lovely Glasgow airport, Scottish shortbread. That was really good. <laughs> that helps enormously. But that's the glib answer. The, the, the real answer actually is also knowing your material. So Mark, Fel Mark Fallon, the chief investigator of Al-Qaeda, a very big figure, as you can imagine, in this world. I think he gave me a Skype interview. I was trying to interview him to take part. And it was maybe an hour long where he interviewed me to find out what I knew. So it's like you're, you're being interrogated. Um, General Zanekis, again, trying to find out what I know before. Now, these guys, it's very hard for them to talk. We call it a D-notice in Britain. Uh, they're under two effectively American D-notices, which is the Department of Defence and Department of Justice, which makes... Any time they talk to us, both off-camera and on-camera, very hard. Mm. Because they're not tried for what we say today, they're actually tried for what we say in future. And what I mean by that, I tried to, try to explain to someone last night. So, if on Tuesday they're allowed to say X, Y, and Z, right? That doesn't mean that the week on Tuesday, that although they said a week before, that they can't be now tried for what they've said. It's a, it's a, does that, do you understand what I mean? 
it, 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 it's weird, isn't it? So they're, they're trying to straddle a line of what we can say, what we can say legally. So even though they can say, I can say to him, you know, I've heard you talk about this before, or I've had an interview with you, like General Zanekis, I've heard an interview, uh, you had an interview in the Washington Post. At that point, he's now thinking, right, there's a changing guard within the government just now. Um, and that's why we end up filming in Montreal, because to try to get a, um, a, an I visa to film in America would have been nigh impossible. So we ended up taking everybody over to Montreal. To, uh, so Winnipeg, Montreal and Toronto to try to get away from that, um, that I visa issue. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about the legal issues that you must have encountered, in, not during, just during filming, but also in post-production? So we're, we're very lucky just now. What, America's got a system called E&O insurance. Have you heard of that, guys? It's emissions and omissions. And so in America just now, there's a big thing where you pay a lawyer to look at all your footage, look at the stories that you've decided to show, look at what you haven't used, and so on. We don't have that in Britain. But what we do have is, is, is you know, the lawyers are fairly on the ball and trying to do it. So, for instance, Mahmoud Salahi. Mahmoud Salahi is recognised as the most tortured of all released detainees, which is about a mouthful, isn't it? So the most... And, and, and Donald Rumsfeld knew exactly what he was doing because he personally, personally authorises a three-month, 24 hours a day and torture program. So that's three different shifts, each working eight hours, torturing him continually. He had what he believed to be menstrual blood put all over him because he was believed to be impotent and also that's frowned upon within the Arab culture. It's frowned upon in any culture, to be honest, putting menstrual blood. It was fake menstrual blood. Um, but he was actually, there's a, there's a kind of difficulty. He believes he was raped by the US military. Our lawyer had a bit of a field day in that one, trying to prove he was raped and trying to prove whether it was um, what, what is sexual assault and what's penetrative. You know, and we ended up having this sort of legal conversation. And of course, the CIA once again destroys its documents and redacts all its documents, so it's very hard to prove what you can't prove. And so you have testimony, what you, what you believe is correct, and you can try and show all these documents to support that. So the lawyers try to go through everything and try to try to take a... I, I, I think they've done a really good job of trying to protect the film mm. and try to protect us from the film as well. Does that make sense? No, no, no what I mean is, it's in, you know, uh, actually, Kirsten, uh, you spotted, I gave a wee nod to my wife in the thank you credits because she's gone through a lot of hell on this film of me making it and stuff like that. And, and it, it, the lawyers are really good because what they're doing is trying to protect me and John and Hopscotch and the BBC from getting sued. And we mentioned a guy called Seligman, and that's a torch of the dogs using this 1967 paper. Uh, uh, Seligman, Martin Seligman, is hugely litigious. And so I think their job is to try and protect us. So, yeah, I'm going to say thank you very much to them. Would it have been out of the question to speak to somebody who was involved in either the experiments or in, in, in the torture that... Doing the torture. Doing the torture. Uh, no, it's another failing. I would say the two failings of the film are we don't have a torture and we don't have uh, the, the, the offspring of Ewan Cameron. Two feelings I feel. Right. Uh, and we tried. In fact, there was a guy, you know, Eminent Monster, the title Eminent Monsters comes from because in the psychiatric wards in the Al Memorial Hospital, they used to refer to Ewan Cameron as the Eminent Monster. 
So, so patients would say, oh my God, that's the eminent monster because they knew this, this guy was he was. We, we, I spoke to, well, tried to get hold of this guy. They're very hard to get hold of some of the torturers, as you can imagine. And there was a guy who I, lo- I, I, I fell in love with this story. He was a big, huge, brutal guy, six foot four or something like that, who actually had the word monster tattooed on his chest. Big old, you know, Germanic letters, monster. And we tried, I tried. I mean, I tried, you know, every which way. I think I was, I mean, I, I had, at one point I had nine different uh, numbers for him. I traced his whole, sort of, all his little places. He keeps on moving around. He keeps on changing cell numbers or mobile numbers. And I had something like nine or ten. And he kept on going, and then that'd be live for a few days, and then that'd be dead. And I kept on trying, and then I was trying to get other people to get hold of him in the Middle East as well. But no, he wasn't for it. I, I, and I can understand why. Because I actually think that the, the post-traumatic stress that they have for being involved in torture... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sure there's questions. Can I ask you one? There's, there's, a, there's a theory of why people take part in torture. If you're a medical professional, and it's called crimes of obedience. And there's three main parts to it. And it's really interesting if you try to understand why a doctor who's trained to save people and try to do no harm takes part in it. And the first one is authorisation. It's a fairly basic concept. The government authorises it, therefore you do it. You, you think, well, that's fine. The second one is to try to dehumanise people. So you call them by the numbers and you try to break it down so you're no longer number one and two. And the, the next one is what you try to do is you create all these systems in place so you, you don't call the hellhole that you're in, you call it cobalt or you call these other euphemisms. And all that does is create this kind of routine where people feel safe professionally, bizarrely they feel safe professionally to take, to take part in this torture. So I can understand why a medical professional who's been trained is saying no to me to, to be interviewed about what they did. Because... Please don't be under any illusion. The medical professionals aren't just bystanders sitting in another room. So, if you want to use you as an example, right? So, they'll analyse what your uh, um, uh, what things will make you fearful. Then they'll um, sort of write, write out the programme for the psychological torture to try to make you more fearful. Then they'll watch that programme and then they'll analyse what your triggers are, how well that you're triggered and then they'll redo it again. Some of them actually did the torture themselves. And the biggest reason is because the Department of Defence and the CIA are the biggest funders, financially. They are the biggest funders to the American Psychological Association. And that's why the doctors want to go back in. It's, it's, it's purely commerce. As we said, Am I talking too fast? No. Blah, blah, blah. Um, but as I said, much to discuss. And uh, I, I'm very conscious that we haven't taken any questions from the audience. So if you'd like to raise your hand if you'd like to contribute uh we'll take this uh you're going to that's been gary oh you better have mine then cheers gary congratulations this evening extremely powerful thank you thank you very much massive dissemination as it should um there's two questions you mentioned obviously the american guys who are speaking very openly do you know if they've had any what i would call blowback if that's the right word, or any response to from the, the, the American system. And at the same time, do you have a showing, or have you had a showing, uh, in the States? Um, so I don't think we, the, the guys are becoming quite outspoken. I think there's a courage now within Mark Fallon, Stephen Zanekis. And, and, and to be honest, St- Stephen Zanekis was the, the first general, which is a, a very high rank, 
to be openly discussing torture and the state's complicity in this. So I don't see any blowback their side. They are trying to be very careful. Mark Fallon is actually leading a campaign for change at an international level, both at United Nations and, and elsewhere. So I don't think there's any blowback. Uh, one of my, you know, I've, I've, I've grown up with Michael Moore being a big, huge, fantastic documentarian, and so it was a big honour. We were um, selected by Michael Moore to be at his festival in Traverse City in June, so that was, sorry, July, and that was amazing. So I flew Mark Fallon over as well from Georgia over, and we had two showings. The second showing was sold out. We had radio shows. He's a book tour as well. But the Q and A's were phenomenal. So and 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 um, uh, I, I, you know the, the local support of people they were really encouraged by hearing an American talking about this. So there's a there's a picture of Donald Rumsfeld and he had this very famous thing. I stand for eight hours because Donald Rumsfeld has a standing desk. He was behind ahead of his time in that sense, right? Mark Fallon was one of the guys that tried to get him to write I stand for eight hours. And the reason behind all of that is trying to prove that people like Donald Rumsfeld know exactly what's happening from a, from a kind of uh, psychological torture point of view. It was one of his first entry points, Mark Fallon, into trying to get some sort of record, if you like. So no, no blowback. And yes, one American, um, uh, Berkeley have asked me to come, Berkeley in California and Stanford have asked me to do a screening next year as well. So we'll do that as well. So that's, that'll be great as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, thanks for this for great um, documentary. I just want to want to make a comment regarding the psychology. So I really believe psychology, and um, so I've done it in the 90s, and 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 learn help 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 helplessness and the other um, nasty nasty things what you can do. Um, my lecturers were were uh, pretty proud of, of this stuff. You know that it actually worked. Yeah, so we so learned this. They, they learned helplessness. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I think uh, these guys that uh, mentioned basically lectures, and they really were, were pretty proud about that. And so, and so therefore, I think there's a there's also a dark dark corner in this direction as a fourth reason maybe to do that because there is now this stuff actually works. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. As a student, you you just shown all this and say, oh, wow, this is great. And especially uh, um, all the evil stuff works. And so therefore, there's also anger. Where just as a comment, yeah, this might be a false motivation for them to go in this direction because it's somewhat like a, like a career move in a certain way because now it works because other psychological concepts don't work as we know now um, and so and so therefore just as a as another um, dark angle to to that yeah. I mean, thank you. No, so learn helplessness. You know, it, it, at the time in 1967, it, it was felt to be uh, an amazing experiment, and it's been quoted quite a lot ever since. Uh, if you look at its application in the dark sites, you have uh, Gurul Raman, who was found, and in fact, he was found dead. He was found dead wearing a diaper. He was um, a diaper. Sorry, America. It's been someone in America recently. He, found dead wearing a nappy. In, 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 in a darked out site, uh, nobody even knew who he was. Now there's another guy, as well as him, there's a guy called Abu Zubaydah, who goes in to, uh, he was captured in Saudi, I think. He goes in with two eyes, he's now got one eye. Nobody has a clue how he lost an eye. Now, the CI literally would click their fingers and they would lie down to be waterboarded or tortured. That's what learned helplessness is. So that's the application. The application of this is so horrendous and 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 the, the and, I, and I say this advisedly, the fun that some of the psychiatrists and psychologists and medical professionals who should have known better 
had with applying this was, was groundbreaking. And, you know, we, we have huge complicity. The media has huge complicity because the reason why we show the Manchurian candidate in 24, in Guantanamo, you had people who were the psychologists, psychiatrists, and people who were the ground troops in Guantanamo wearing cowboy chaps. The biggest grossing, the biggest, most uh, important show in Guantanamo was 24 at that point. It, it cemented them, it made them feel that they were on the front line, that no longer were the ground soldiers who were actually on the front line, in the front line. The real front line was medically uh, inside Guantanamo and all dark sites. So you can imagine these people come in. Mohammed um, Salahi tells me a story of like people coming in with leather chaps on and a, a cowboy hat coming in to do torture. Right? And they've learned it from 24, they've learned how it, it's seductive. Because we, we've, in our industry, we've said it's seductive, uh, it works. And then they adopt some of these, they bring out some old things from the, the Cold War. You know, it, it's horrendous. Thanks for your question. Hi, Stephen. Hiya. Um, congratulations on that. It's a very vital film. Did you ever, during the production process, uh, feel under threat, tapped, noticed by any official organisation either in the UK, USA or elsewhere in the world? Is that you, Louise? No? Sure is. Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, thank you, Louise. Uh, yeah, we, we, it was a nice wee story when we were filming in the graveyard. Um, the guy who did, Scott, who did all the graphics was coming out, so he hadn't really done much outside. So we were filming in the graveyard. The day before we filmed, there was a murder. I remember telling Scott, don't worry, but it's not connected with us. It's just a murder. It's really not connected with us. So he was a wee bit on alert. And then there was a guy who then wanted to examine who we believe is intelligence services, wanted to look in the car and take notes of everything in the car. So he, we were a wee bit alert. And then when we left, we'd, we'd arrived maybe at 7 in the morning, whatever, and when we left at 7 at night, the last junction just before we flew off, so we, we drove off to the airport to drive off the drop off a higher car, then the black BMW that had been following us for the entire time left. And I said to Scott, did you see that? And he was like, no. And he was like, oh, when you tell him, no. It's so, and I don't believe, for an instant, if they don't want me to know they're there, I'd have never known. I, I mean, I'm, I'm in Cloud land half the time. So we had that. I was in the United Nations, probably one of my proudest events. We've taken this to the United Nations to try to use this to position for governmental change at a member state level. And, and afterwards, when I came back, there was a guy from intelligence services who wanted to have a word with me, who wanted to talk about sort of my motivations and so on. So that was quite good. We've had times where my computer has done this zigzag zigzag, like the Matrix, you know. And I remember asking someone, and they said, "Oh, don't worry, that's just in my six in your computer now. You're just having a route around." I tell you, the, the most funniest time though, right, was when Bernie, who is the editor, was sitting in the in the edit, and me and him were talking. And every single time we mentioned something, Siri would pop up. So we got used to Siri just all randomly listening in. But at one point, Bernie, who isn't this guy, started swearing and shouting and pulling cables, right? He's going, fuck, 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 fuck. Now, our keyboard, unconnected to Bernie's hands, the keyboard's there because we were talking, starts deleting footage from our hard drive. That is amazing. That's when you realise it's fun now, you know? I'm afraid 
I'm going to have a quick microphone here. Oh, sorry. No, but, well, I was just going to say we're almost out of time. In fact, okay. we, we kind of are out of time, but I will just ask this one question anyway, because it, it, to round things off, if you like, that it, it, your documentary very much makes the point that modern torture may not even achieve the results that it's supposed to, that it doesn't get extract information, but it is so much a part of the war against terrorism. My question is, has modern torture made the world a more dangerous place? So, I'm just a guy from Glasgow, right? You look at the guy, Mark Fallon, chief, chief investigator of Al-Qaeda, and he says that we have created ISIS as a result of this. That's your answer. Now, now I, here's a question to you guys, right? So, I, I grew up in the Middle East, but I'm actually a Glasgow guy, right? So, I think of my dad, who I thought was my hero. I don't tend to think of him my dad's dad, my dad's dad's dad. In the Arabic culture, they talk about the slight that happened to them three, four cultures back. So I think you have to look at the storytelling culture of, 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 uh, the, of, of uh, the Middle East and realise that what we have sown in the UK is just as complicit as America. I think we're in, we're in a world of hell coming on because I think that the, the memories of all these people coming out from Guantanamo is, is going to remain and percolate through the different generations. But if I can leave you two things, right? So when you say, you know, we know it doesn't work, it, it, it turned out, I remember speaking to this guy, it turned out that the CIA knew what they were doing wasn't effective, and the CIA knowingly lied to the POTUS, the president, about its efficacy, right? So it was a secret document found, and it was a, uh, it was a whistleblower who I tried to get part of the programme, Daniel Jones, who's just made that film, The Report, which is going to be on Amazon pretty soon. Now, that would be amazing. But I, I believe we're into a lot of pain coming on in the future. I don't think it's going away. I, I think that our complicity and our... So you look at people in Guantanamo just now, so people who have been in there for 18-odd uh, years, and when I was talking to this guy, this nice guy, well-chiseled army guy on a plane coming back from Geneva trying to find out whether I was a torture, a terror sympathiser or not. And my point to him was, if we are secure of our rule of law, if we are confident in, our, in the guilt of the people we have put into these places, then we should put them on trial. Now, I am not in any way trying, and I should point this, not in any way trying to deny what happened 9-11 was horrendous. But if people have been locked up, like uh, Mohammed Salahi for 14 years, and then released with no charge. Where, where is our moral uh, Rubicon? We've crossed that moral Rubicon. We've lost that, haven't we? We've lost that moral superiority. If I could say one word, I honestly think that we have, we've, we've lost our ability to, to go around the world and pontificate and say we are better than you because we've fucked up here. We really have. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Bennett. Thank you. Good one. Thank you very much. Thank you. And it, it really is an honour being ambassador by the way. It's it's superb, so thank you for coming out tonight.